You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. All right, good morning, Real Life. How's it going? We are going to attack this sermon completely differently than we have done every single other sermon in Revelation. So join as Tasha and I have a conversation today. <laughs> Get some, getting some love from the back too. All right, so uh, here's what's happening. Right now, we're going to do Revelation 20 today. And Revelation 20, if you, if you care about the book of Revelation, you know that this chapter is huge. It's huge. And so um, what we've been doing in our series is we've been attacking Revelation from a historical and textual criticism format. And that doesn't mean that we're being critical of it. It means we're thinking critically about where the text sits in history and how we should understand it from its genre and those kinds of things. And that, to me, is a right way to do it. However, today we're going to bring up a topic that if you care at all, about the book of Revelation, this is the sermon that you've been waiting for. And so um, we are gonna try to, rather than doing this just from a, here's the historical context, here's where they're pulling from, and we could dance with like, um, this has all been coming out of Daniel 7, which it is, it's all being pulled out of Daniel 7 and the Son of Man passage, and it's all about Babylon, but the fall of Rome and the fall of Babylon. Um, We could do that, just know that that's true. Um, we've been saying that every week for the last several weeks, right? Or we could talk about this from a doctrinal standpoint. And so what we're going to do is we're going to step out of the text and we're going to pull apart all the doctrinal sludge that is attached to this passage and see if we can't make some sense out of it, okay? So we're really only going to attack three verses today. Um, you'll have to read the rest of Revelation 20 in your own personal quiet time, okay? So let's begin Revelation chapter 20, and then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, which is interesting that that's split, but that's another conversation for another day, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, if you know anything about the end times, you know that this passage is loaded, right? There's some massive pieces in here that are really critical that we've got to talk about. And so what we're going to do is we're going to step out of the passage, out of exegetical teaching, and we're going to talk topically. And what we're going to talk about is the study of eschatology, okay? So eschatology, everybody say eschatology. Eschatology. Yeah, eschatology. You guys are going to be so smart. Eschatology is the study of the end times, So when somebody says, what's your eschatological view, what they're asking you for is, how do you think it's going to end? Here's how I think it's going to end. It's over. Um, That's how it's going to end. Now, surprise, that's how it's going to end. Didn't see that coming. Jesus says something about that. It's one of those Bible nerd jokes. Some of you were like, that was, 
Wait, nobody else is laughing. Okay. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. I want to pull apart eschatology and all these pieces that this passage mentions. And I want to get our head around why people feel this way and see maybe where we should land in all that mess. Now, here's what I can tell you. Me trying to convince you that my view is right, number one, short sells the argument, and number two is a futile task. You're not going to change your opinion. I'm not going to change my opinion. Right? Let's be honest. If the discussion on eschatology was as simple as we'd like to make it, do you believe that we would still be debating it? Of course not. Of course not. And so this is important for us to understand. I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay the argument out for you. I'm going to show you the different options and why they're options. And then we're going to talk about something important. Okay? So let's talk about the three parts of eschatology. Now, for those of you that care about eschatology, you're going to be like, that's way too simple. Right. Yes. But these are still the three main pieces of eschatology. No matter how you, well, but that's, that's twisted. Right. So these are still the three main pieces of eschatology. So this is where we're going to live. Let's look at them. The three main pieces of parts of eschatology are, number one, the millennium. So remember in the passage, it talked about the thousand years. Christ is going to reign. The, the, the Satan and the dragon and the devil is bound for a thousand years. What do we call a thousand years? A millennia, right? So this is where we get this term millennium. And this is kind of the centerpiece of everyone's eschatological view. Everyone's view of the end times kind of revolves around how we place the other two pieces around the millennium. Make sense? Did I lose you? No. Okay, this is important. You get, this is going to be, this is like sitting in an exit row. Okay, you're going to have a verbal yes or no. And if you say no, it's going to be weird. So, Stop it. Okay, so three parts of eschatology. First of all is the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. What is that? And more importantly, when is it? Number two is the rapture of the church, the church being taken out, which, by the way, is not in Revelation 20, but that is another conversation for another day as well. Um, when, at what point in the whole thing does the church get taken out? That's going to be an important piece. And the third piece is the tribulation, which is after the, it's said in Revelation 20, after the millennial reign, then the, the, the beast is bound for a thousand years, and then he's let loose for a little while. We, we, we know that as the tribulation, okay? So let me give you a picture of what this will look like, okay? So let's throw up our diagram. This is the thousand years, the millennium, okay? So I want you to imagine this. And there's these, there's these major views that we have. Let's throw those major views up. Uh, the, the other two pieces are the rapture and the tribulation. So go to the next slide. Here we go. So the most popular ones today are premillennial, postmillennial, panmillennial. Our church is panmillennial. We say this in every 101. Our church is panmillennial. Here's the view. It'll all pan out. So that's, that's where we're at on, as a church officially, right? But there's premillennial, postmillennial, there's amillennial, there's preterism, there's various different views, right? But our church is panmillennial. Here's what we've decided as a church. We can talk about it, but our church is not on the planning committee. We are on the welcoming committee, which means we're going to let somebody else figure out how it's going to end. Our job community, church, real life, is that when people get there, 
we are going to make them feel really glad that they're there. So, you know, the hymn, when we all get to heaven. Why? Because we're on the welcoming committee. (laughs) That's why. Because the welcoming committee parties hard. That's why. Okay, so that's, that's the deal. That's the deal. We're not on the planning committee. Let me tell you what the planning committee is trying to figure out. Okay, we'll tell you what the planning committee is trying to figure out. So let's look at these examples. So here is the rapture is before the millennium. So it's pre-millennial. And the tribulation is at the end. So that's post-trib. You with me? This is the dominant view of the modern church. There was an amazing book series put out a few years ago. I'm not going to tell you the name, but the initials were left behind. <laughs> it was built on this view. You remember, if you read the story, you're like, it freaked me out, man. They were in a plane and the pilot was gone. Right? You saw the movie or you read the book, built on this. It's built on this. The, all of a sudden, when the millennial reign of Christ shows up right before it does, the church is going to be raptured out. Now, I personally call this the coward's way out, and here's why. I have good friends that are solid theologians that hold this view, and they'll, if they're honest, they'll tell you the reason why I hold this view is because I don't want to have to endure the tribulation. That's the truth. That's the truth. They want the church raptured out because they figure they're part of it, which is kind of a, you know arrogant statement. I know them. Not really sure they're part of the church, but anyway, no, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Relax. Relax. Next one. Let's look at another one. So this one is premillennial. So the rapture is premillennial, and the tribulation is before the millennial. So this is premillennial, pre-trib. Does that make sense? Okay, let's look at another one. This is pre-trib, post-millennial. Now the post-millennial view, and I'm oversimplifying. Yes, I am. You're going to have to put up with it is that essentially during the millennial reign of Christ, the world is good and getting better until it's restored enough for Jesus to return. And so then he comes and raptures the church out, and what a day of rejoicing that will be. Now, here's the thing that I really want us to talk about this morning. Jesus says, and you guys all know this, that nobody's going to know the day or the hour. We are not going to be able to figure out when Christ is coming back, right? We're not going to be able to figure it out. We know that. So if we know that on the front end of the conversation, why are we working so hard to figure it out? We know that we can't, and we're trying so hard to figure it out. Now, I have a theory why. And I'm sure that there's other nuances of this, but try it on before you just boldface reject it. I think that we're trying to figure it out so that we can know when we need to get serious about following Christ. And I think for some of you in here, you're like, yeah, that's kind of, yeah. I had a, I had a college professor um, that sent me an email years ago. I was in my 20s. Um, years ago. Um, I was in my late 20s, so it wasn't that many years ago. Um, But he sent me this email. The subject line on the email read, the new 95 Theses. Now, if you know anything about church history, the 95 Theses 
That's the document that Martin Luther nailed to the door of the Gutenberg Cathedral that sparked the Reformation. Like, you're not Catholic today because of the 95 Theses. That's an important document, right? And so the subject line is the new 95. I was like, I have got to read this. So I opened the email up, and the email is an explanation of preterism, which is a view of the end times. You don't have to understand it. But his, his thing, and he's like, this is going to revolutionize the church. It's going to revolutionize everything about everything. And this is totally, and it's going to completely up in there. Huge, 95 things. 95, like this, how we believe things are going to end changes everything. And, and so today, I am a very reserved and quiet individual. Compared to when I was in my 20s, <laughs> it, it, right now, it's, I'm kind of like Anne of Green Gables. If you knew what I kept inside, you would think I said nothing at all. So um, some of you guys can relate to me on that. In my 20s, I had a lot less discretion. So in my attempt to right the wrongs of this world, I hit reply. This is not going to turn out well. <laughs> I got to tell you this story, but I don't look good in it. Um, So I started to email him back and said, so what you're telling me is that because you have a new understanding of how things end, you've revolutionized everything about the church, everything. Okay, well, let's run this out. How does it change how I'm supposed to live today? How does it change about how I'm supposed to talk to my coworkers? How does it change how I'm supposed to treat my wife? How does it change how I'm supposed to parent or love my neighbors or be involved in this world? How does it change anything about anything? And that's the new 95 Theses? Send. (laughs) Yeah, he didn't reply back. So uh, that's kind of how that went. That's kind of how that went. Like to me, if the church isn't careful, we can take these really interesting Christian conversations and start to major on minors. And when we do that, we miss everything. The problem with us fighting for understanding eschatology is that we leverage it to be able to today have Jesus and. Listen, there is nothing about your understanding of how things are going to end that should change anything about the urgency and the passion with which I follow Christ today. And if we don't get that right, we can be really in danger of missing the mission entirely. But hey, we know how it's going to end. I'll tell you how it's going to end. It's over. That's how it's going to end. Now, how we get from here to there matters. Because today, right now, in this moment, it hasn't ended yet. Now, it may in the next, but if it doesn't, I doesn't, like it doesn't change how I'm supposed to live now. It doesn't change anything. So we want to put off the inevitable 
taking God seriously because we know it isn't going to happen until the nation of Israel, the mighty eastern bear, swoops into the north and the one world order and the massive currency of the one world. And then we take God seriously. No, and then you're in big trouble. That's the only difference. That's the really the only difference. Uh, majoring on the minors doesn't help us succeed at anything. Right? My dad... Now, my dad was a preacher. Some of you guys know that. Um, now the rest of you do. Uh, I suppose it's kind of a dumb thing for me to say, actually. And it's going online. So my dad was a preacher, and he used this, preached this sermon every so often. And I don't think it was his originally, but he sure treated it like it was. He thought it was pithy. Uh, the title of the sermon was, The Main Thing is to Keep the Main Thing the Main Thing. Right? which is kind of what I'm saying this morning. We can talk about the millennium and the pieces and all that, and it is an interesting conversation. It is, it's an interesting conversation. But the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And whether we're in the millennium today, like the amillennialists believe, or the millennium is coming, like the premillennialists believe, or some other version of it, whether or not that's true, I am called to live as a kingdom of God resident today. And that means that Jesus is kinging in my heart. Which means... That it doesn't matter if Jesus comes and reigns on the earth for a thousand years somewhere else down the road. Today, he's reigning here. Now, that being said, that ought to affect a few things, like everything. Because my task from now until the end, whatever the end looks like, whether Jesus returns and that's the end, or I get raptured out and then there's millennial reign, or I die and time goes on, whatever the end is, from now until the end, I'm obligated to engage the world in a way consistent with who my king is. And that's important. Because if we don't get that right, then nothing else matters. And the problem is we're trying to leverage doctrine and orthodoxy to, to be like, eh, you know, you're, you're taking Jesus too serious today. Like, we'll get there. We'll get serious. And, and as the end gets closer, we'll ratchet up the urgency. No, 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 no. You should live no less urgent today as you would the day before you, Jesus returns, even if you knew. Like, today, the urgency is real. Yeah. It's not like, you only have one day left. Like, which raises all kinds of questions about what our goal is in getting people to follow God. Is our goal in getting people to follow God this kind of disembodied evacuation of getting people out of here some glad morning when this life is o'er? That's what we're living for. Listen, here's the deal. Your call, your mission as a follower of Jesus is to put your God on display today. And today you have friends and family members who are missing out on what it means to have a fully actualized relationship with God today. And they're hurting themselves today and they don't even know. And we're called to put our God on display in a way that reveals him for who he really is today so that 
they can understand how much the God and creator of the universe is for them and wants good things for their life and gives them peace and freedom and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we're worried about the millennium? I think we may be missing the boat. My call as a follower of Jesus is to reveal to the world that Jesus is reigning in my heart because of how I choose to engage it. And there's so many Christians who believe that the reason that they're getting in is that they think right. They think they get the right doctrine. I figured out eschatology before God did, apparently, because... Or Jesus himself, because he said that even he doesn't know. Only God knows, which is a whole other question. He's like, nobody knows, not even the Son of Man, but only God the Father knows when the day will be. So you figured out something before Jesus did, which is impressive. It's impressive. You are smart. And you'll stand before God. Let's say, let's run this out. You'll stand before God and God will be like, you are smart. You figured out something that Jesus didn't figure out. You are smart. Man, you're brilliant. Did did you walk it out? Because none of us are going to stand before God accountable for whether or not we figured out the millennium. Are you with me? So that being said, what you and I have to figure out, we've got to figure out How do we live showing the world that Jesus is reigning in my heart today? How do we do that? And that, that's hard. And so we're going to do something different. Matthew 25 is in your notes. It's a great one for you to, to look at. We don't have time to read it. But it's like, how do I know that I'm participating in showing God is reigning in my heart? I can tell you how. If you see somebody who's thirsty, give them a drink. If you see somebody who's hungry, give them food. If you see somebody who's naked, clothe them. Like that, that. Start there. But I want us to do something. And if you're taking notes today, uh, by the way, we're going to move towards the Lord's table. So if you're going to pass out communion, go ahead and start grabbing that and passing it out. If you're taking notes today, what you'll notice in your notes is that there's a space to write down some specific things. And I want to raise this question. In some specific areas, how do I participate in showing the world that the king is Jesus here? How do I participate in that today? How do I do that? And so I'm going to give you some opportunity to write down in that. But before we do, I want to talk to you about communion. We take communion every week. And so anybody, we have an open table. That means that anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake. But we want you to hold the elements till the end, and we'll take it all together. Okay? So while they're passing that out, I want you to be thinking about some things. This question of how do I participate? The first area that I want you to think about is how do I participate in showing the world that God is king of my heart in my own personal growth? How do I do that? See, here's the funny thing about being a Christian. We will appeal to God's grace all the time for ourselves, but when it comes to other people, 
we will accuse them of not acting very Christian very quickly. The problem for us is that relationally, we've got to get more and more and more healthy. We've got to be committed to being able to do our part in the community between me and God and another person. Because everywhere I go, I take God with me. And so when I let my scars and my fears and my hopelessness, when I let that rule the relationship, then I'm in big trouble. And they get a skewed version of who God is. Does that make sense? And here's the other thing. When we choose to act out of our woundedness and scars and fear, what we're saying is that the truth and promises of God don't mean as much to us as the hurt and the scars that other people gave us. Which means that in my life, and here's the hard part, God isn't God, the person who gave me the wounds is. That's why Jesus came to set you free from that. Because I can promise you, the people who gave us our wounds don't deserve to be God in our life. Like we shouldn't give them that kind of authority. How are we participating in putting our God on display to the world in the way that we are personally growing? How are we doing that? There's some space for you to write there. Maybe you can think about it. Next one. How am I participating in putting my God on display at work? How am I doing that? What are the jokes that I tell? What are the jokes I don't tell? What are the things that I participate in? When someone else is talking negatively about a coworker, do I join in? Do I listen? Do I entertain it? Or do I say, hey, that's a gossip. I don't want to be a part of that. Because then they might talk bad about you. Right? You're like, I don't want to make it awkward. It, it would help them, it would make them feel bad. No, what it would do is make you worried about what them feeling bad could do to you. It's rooted in selfishness, let's be honest. Like, how do I participate in putting the world back together, bringing the kingdom of God crashing into earth, showing everybody that God is the king of my heart? How do I do that at work? Next one. How do I do that in my family? How do I show my family that God is the king of my heart? Because there's a whole lot of people that I know that spend a lot of time putting the good show on out here, but when they go home, they're not so good at it. Like maybe this is the most important one of all because it reveals the truest version of you. So I want to talk to guys for just a minute because I'm not a woman. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not female. Um, we're all thankful because that would be a bad-looking woman. <laughs> uh, I'll talk to guys for just a minute. Like, especially Christian guys, I think that we've got the whole subject of marriage wrong, or at least skewed. Subject of marriage, like, we're like, how do you treat me? And we leverage this amazing biblical word, submit. You're called to submit to me. Which, first of all, if you've ever tried to actually use that phrase, you know it doesn't ever go over well. But secondly, we love to throw out the submit word and we completely neglect the context. Context matters, exclamation point. 
Because the next, next verse is, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Did Jesus ever demand something from anyone? Like he invited people to healthy, to true, to right, to good, to free, but did he ever demand that they do it? Love your wife that way. Maybe try that. Maybe love your kids that way. See what happens. I feel like the church has promoted some really unhealthy, we have overemphasized hierarchical structure and forgotten that in the Christian world, the leader serves first before they're served. Maybe we should set that standard. Maybe that would reveal to the world that Jesus is king here. Uh, yeah, all the fears that you have, men, you're like, well, if I really do that, that would suck. Yeah, it would. And Jesus would be king of your heart and you would have freedom and peace. Just try it. Last one. How do I participate in showing the world that the Lord is king of my heart in my hobbies? How do I do that? And here's the deal. If you're like, listen, I am a Christian everywhere but at the baseball game. Uh, you know, I'm a Christian everywhere but when I go watch NASCAR, whatever. I'm a Christian everywhere but when I'm watching my kids play sports. I'm a Christian everywhere but this. Whatever the this is, that's a place where you've taken the mark and it's time to let it go. The things that I give my energy to that compete with God's role in my life have no place in my life. I know that's hard to hear. Some of us like working on cars or quilting or whatever and like, look at my amazing quilt or look at this hot rod I built and then somebody else comes along with a bigger, badder one and you're like, right now I gotta go back and make mine better, right? Like, what? How do I put God on display in my hobbies? How do I do that? What I can tell you is one of the reasons why we take communion every week is because it models for us what it means to lay our lives down for the well-being of someone else. And that's hard, but it's worth it. Because we're here today believing that God wants to tell a better story in our life because Jesus did. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And then after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Lord, I just want to say thanks for loving us and thanks for your grace and thanks for this amazing partnership that you've invited us into. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to have wisdom to figure out how we can major on the majors and not get sucked into beating people up over minor issues. God, we give ourselves to you completely, believing that only you can produce anything good in our lives. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.